0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: He always took the Bible for his guide, and he liked little boys to walk by his side. He preferred their company more so than men, because he knew there was less guile in them. And in his conversation he was modest and plain, denouncing all pleasures he considered sinful and vain, and in battle he carried no weapon but a small cane, whilst the bullets fell around him like a shower of rain. He burnt the debtor's books that were imprisoned in Khartoum, and freed them from a dismal prison gloom. Those that were imprisoned for debts they couldn't pay, and sent them rejoicing on their way. Beautiful, Tom. Absolutely beautiful reading of a brilliant poem. Thank you very much. Further verses there from William McGonagall's great poem, uh, marking the death of General Gordon and Khartoum in 1885. And Dominic, in the first part, we were looking at the first part of Gordon's career, up to the point where he goes to the Sudan for the first time. So um, he's a great hero. He's... the Chinese Gordon he's called he spent 6 years in uh Gravesend helping um <laughs> helping the Wangs <laughs> the little boys who were mentioned in that uh, in that poem yeah. there yeah um and if you think that's suspicious well you can hear our discussion of that uh in uh, in yesterday's episode if you haven't already um so dominic so February 1874 yes
0: what's going on so there's this extraordinary situation um in the Sudan, basically. So Egypt, which is nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, but but de facto kind of isn't, um, is, is pretty much, it has the Sudan almost as a kind of a possession of its own. But in turn, Egypt is kind of answering to, to Britain because it owes Britain loads of money. Um, so what you have in the Sudan is that the Sudanese economy, the Sudan is incredibly poor, the Sudanese economy depends largely on slavery. So the, the slavery is being abolished all over the world and the slave trade being stamped out. The East African slave trade is still going very strong. In fact, it's arguably stronger than ever because slavery has been stamped out elsewhere. So there's loads of money to be made from slavery. And the, the Khedive of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt, I think basically uses the sort of anti-slavery sentiment. He says, "Well, I want to stamp out slavery too." Actually, what he really wants is to reassert his control over the Sudan, and what he wants to do is to get a get a, a somebody in, an outsider, a Brit, to come and run the Sudan for him and impose control, set up a whole trading network, and and the Khedive says, "I'd like you to stamp out the slave trade as well." So it's a bit, a bit,
1: perhaps. Yeah. Like the Iraqi exiles from Saddam Hussein's regime going to American Neoconservatives and saying Would you please come and Would you please come and kick out Saddam?
0: I suppose that's a slightly a slight, yes. It's a slight stretch, but I can see what you're saying. It's basically yes, it's it's well, getting but an outsider it's just, into... it's
1: just that, that, that. So we've done an episode on, on 9-11. eleven, we've done an episode on Napoleon in Egypt. And this is kind of midway between that. But it's it we are now moving in into the very, very contested, complex, and yeah. um, very ambivalent
0: history of of the relationship of the West to Islam. That's right. I mean, is it? And also the, the whole slavery issue, right? I mean, yeah. Well, so, well, well.
1: well because, absolutely, because um, the the impetus for anti slavery is Christian. It's absolutely powered by exactly the kind of experience of
0: being born again of evangelical certitude that Gordon has also bought into. So Gordon is passionately opposed to slavery. I mean, basically for the second half of his life, he spends all his time thinking about how he'd love to be a crusader against slavery and stamp it out and so on. And that means he ends up being used or almost used by a succession of of quite dodgy people. So one of them is the And later on, Leopold II Belgian in the Congo who wants to use Gordon as a tool, with anti-slavery being the pretext, and elements and elements within British foreign policy establishment and
1: military establishment as well, yeah. because one of the um, one of the paradoxes of Britain's a- absolutely key role in the abolition of the slave trade, which is done for overtly moralistic reasons. I mean, I, I say overtly. I mean, they are done for, for moral reasons. These it's it's forced through, and led and and conducted by people who passionately believe that they're doing God's will. But that very sense of moral agency then becomes a, a further tool of imperialism, because of it provides a moral sanction for Britain to intervene. Um, and of course, the, 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 the Protestant evangelical motivation for this is not something that sits easily with Islam, which is, you know, has a body of texts, of sayings, of prescriptions that, in the opinion of Muslims, derive directly from God. And so, Gordon's understanding of God is written on his heart. It's experienced as as a process of being born again. He doesn't. He reads the Bible, but he understands the Bible through that prism. For Muslims, there is this great body of law that, for centuries and centuries and centuries, has says that slavery is legitimate. And so there is. I mean, I suppose you call it a clash of civilizations. I mean, certainly a, a, a clash of moral perspectives.
0: Yeah. I think that's but, fair. I think Gordon doesn't quite know even at this stage. So this isn't the sort of fatal trip to the Sudan. This is a much earlier one. But yeah. Even at this stage, there's the sense that he doesn't quite know what he's getting into.
1: Well, he's actually he's going as Governor General of the Equator, isn't he?
0: Yeah. So, so it's quite it's a slightly weird, it's slightly stories. further down. So basically, one of the Khedive's ministers, who's a guy called N- Nubar Pasha, he meets Gordon at a dinner party in Constantinople and he's impressed by him and he asks somebody afterwards who is that and somebody says oh that's chinese gordon don't you know who he is and he gets a book about him and he reads this book by, written by a french royalist which says oh what a tremendous person gordon is and the minister says oh this is a this is the kind of person we're looking for you know let's get him in to come down and at first gordon's as you say just sent down to what's called equatoria which is kind of now south sudan north uganda so mm-hmm. it's the bottom bit of of the Sudan, and that's the bit that basically the Sudanese slave hunters prey upon. They they are looking for kind of black African slaves that they will send north and east and so on. Which, again, they've been doing since the 8th century. But Gordon thinks this is unconscionable. He's he's there to stamp it out, and, to, and in doing so, to reassert the power of Cairo. So he goes down, and he's basically, he basically ends up being given more and more power. So by 1877, three years after he's arrived, He's been made governor general of the whole of Sudan. Yeah. That sounds like a very grand job, but basically, he's doing it on his own with a handful of people, kind of trudging around this colossal, colossal country. I mean, a country basically the size of Western Europe. And kind of horrible. Um, yeah. I mean, the conditions are unbelievable. They've got, tough. got kind so of it, permanent so... dysentery. There's, there's no water. That's incredibly hot.
1: Well, again, we, we've. So we've listened straight to his biography of him, which. <laughs> in so many ways so damning of him so so negative and yet again and again there are phrases that that kind of are expressive of admiration so he just so straightly describes uh gordon in equatoria the confused and horrible country the appalling climate the maddening insects and the loathsome diseases the indifference of subordinates and superiors the savagery of the slave traders and the hatred of the inhabitants so a, a kind of a, a, a grueling place for someone to be and he's fascinating i mean from, from, from contemporary sensibility so obviously his role in stopping the slave trade i mean you what's know, not
0: to approve really um but he's also very hostile to ivory trading he is because a lot of the slave trade is driven by ivory so they need people there's a huge demand for ivory in the in the west and a lot of the slaves are carrying loads of ivory to the coast yeah and um st- the, stopping the two kind of goes hand in hand so actually you know Gordon's a conservationist hero as well as an anti slavery one.
1: Well he's worried. he's worried that the um the rapacity for ivory will wipe elephants out. And he's, which is he's right. know, yeah. a
2: very
0: twenty first century perspective. So But he's sort of he's a failure though, isn't he, ultimately? He's disappointed. He yeah. he basically says, I can't rely on any of the Egyptians, they're completely corrupt. Well, because he he
1: the, the only way to stop the slave trade is to stop it at source. I sorry, is is to stop the market. So he he can try and you know, basically, he's kind of uh, whack-a-mole, yeah. Because you know, he'll close off one avenue, and another one will sprout up. Um, you know, it's got to be. He recognises it's got to be stopped in Arabia
0: and Constantinople or whatever. That that's the only way to halt it. Yeah, and he's a, he's a very. Something quite forlorn about him, I think. At this point, you know, he, he, as you say, he's in terrible conditions. He's very lonely. He's reading his Bible for three hours a day to mm. kind of console himself as he's as he's sort of riding his camels around the Sudan or taking ship down the Nile or whatever. Um, and then he he basically resigns, doesn't he? At the end of uh, eighteen seventy nine, early eighteen eighty, he basically he says, "I've had enough. I'm out." You know, I'm not getting the support I need. But that that's helped to make him. Even more of a celebrity, the fact that he's basically been running a country, a massive country. So then, Leopold II, this Belgian bad guy, I'm sorry to say, uh, asks him to come and run the Congo for him. That but hasn't he before first... that?
1: Hasn't he gone off to be private secretary to the viceroy of India? Yeah,
0: I think he had a, an opening an offer from Leopold. Leopold keeps asking him. Okay. But he does go to India. You're right, as the private secretary of Lord Ripon, who's the viceroy, and he hates it, absolutely hates it, and he resigns after. So he writes in Bombay with the viceroy after, after on the kind of a week, and yeah.
1: a Zoroastrian, a Parsi, hands over a book of poetry, and Gordon, as the private secretary, has to tell say, yes, the viceroy will read it with great interest, but no, the viceroy will never read it, and, yeah. and and Gordon is so tormented by having to lie about this that he resigns
0: yeah he's a well he's a very intense person yeah. i mean he's not the person you would employ as your pa basically not is... the kind of person
1: he'd employ as a spin doctor in downing street certainly
0: no no no, that's very, definitely true he wouldn't um he wouldn't laugh about uh illicit parties, parties. no no he wouldn't well he hates he
1: hates dinner parties i mean
0: he that's the other thing when well, he, he says when he's in khartoum people at the constantly end. asking him to dinner parties Did you see, when he's in khartoum at the end of his story he says, you know, one of the great things about being here is that I don't have to go to any dinner parties. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When 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 is the famous thing where he he meets up with a French guy who takes him to the opera house in Naples?
0: Oh, I didn't see this. Where they is see
1: in- uh, they see um female ballet dancers and Gordon's so appalled he says if this is civilization, it can go <laughs> You can keep it. <laughs> and then according to the Frenchman he comes round to see Gordon later and Gordon is kind of sitting there with his trousers open, lying on the bed, drinking, necking brandy.
0: Uh, I don't believe that. That's Rudolph Giuliani, surely, but from your description. <laughs> well, it's well. a guy called Joseph Reinhardt. Oh, at right, yes. was, was, yeah. At
1: the time, was very enthusiastic
0: about Gordon, but then 30 or 40 years and this then... We haven't is- really mentioned the issue about Gordon and drink. So there are hmm. um, stories that were put about later on. We had a question, actually. Uh, one of our listeners asked us a question Man of Gwent, says Winston Churchill were out of Gordon. Of course there's no doubt that Gordon as a political <laughs> figure <laughs> was absolutely hopeless. He was so erratic, capricious, utterly unreliable. His mood changed so often, his temper was abominable, he was frequently drunk, and yet with all that he had a tremendous sense of honour and great abilities. I mean Churchill's basically talking about himself, isn't he? Yes, but- very much so, but you know where he got where Churchill got that from? From um, uh, Lord Cromer, Evelyn Baring. So
1: Evelyn Baring, who's basically the guy who's running Egypt. Yeah, and who hated and who Gordon. Hated Gordon. So Baring is a source for a lot of the stories that, I mean, actually most of the stories that, um, that Gordon was a drunk and an alcoholic. And also um, that he perhaps wasn't entirely all that he should have been sexually. So Baring said of Gordon that he was a queer fellow with a very feminine side to oh, his yes, character. Oh, yes, I saw that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Baring can't really be trusted, I think. And a lot of Gordon... I mean, Gordon wasn't a drunk. I think you can reasonably say he might sometimes have, you know, in, in stressful situations, necked a bit of brandy. But I think... He was drunk with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, by and large, most of the people who worked with him said, no, I don't think he was a drunk. He, I didn't see him drinking to excess. So I think we can probably put that one um, to bed a little bit. What is true is that Gordon, as time goes on particularly because he's in these incredibly stressful situations. He is a bit cranky, isn't he? And he's alone with his Bible, and he just keeps reading the Bible. And and, and making up his own strange ideas. So having yeah. been – he's been to the Sudan, where else – I can't remember South where – South Africa he goes. He's been to South Africa. He meets Ketueyo, doesn't he? There's this strange point where he goes to Mauritius the with, with the royal engineers. <laughs> have you seen this? Yeah. He goes, he goes to the Seychelles, to one of the islands of the Seychelles, where they have these – these sea coconuts these double coconuts called coco de mer um and gordon becomes convinced that the trees with the sea with the double coconuts are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the garden of eden this he thinks he's found the garden of eden because he says these double coconuts if they're attached to the tree they look like the male organ of generation yeah brilliant and if stuff. you cut them open they look very much like the female organs of generation. So these clearly are what Eve and the serpent were getting stuck into or whatever. So you can imagine you're getting telegrams about this <laughs>
1: well, in the residency
0: at Cairo. Well he tells people <laughs> this. This is the thing. Yeah. So the governor of Basuto Land he told him he said he wrote Gordon is as mad as a marcher. <laughs> He's certainly a military genius, but about religious matters he is quite mad. And yeah. and clearly even Gordon's admiring biographers say Gordon was going around telling people this, you know, stiff kind of Victorian worldly kind of governors and generals and stuff. And they're just absolutely bamboozled (laughs) by it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, and
1: also he then goes to the Holy Land, doesn't he? And he finds Golgotha, doesn't he? He thinks he's found So he claims, yes. And you can still see it actually in Jerusalem. So it's uh, the the tomb in the garden. So it's not the church of the, Holy Sepulchre,
0: right? Place called Skull Most... Hill. Is it called That's Skull right. Hill?
1: Yeah. So it's outside the old city, uh, and, up and on the hill.
0: Is there any credence for Gordon's claim? No,
1: I don't think so. Oh, but I've, I've been there. It's, I mean, it 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 looks more like you would it, you would hope it would look, right? So he, he he's doing all that, and also I think he's,
0: I mean, he's just kind of, I mean, he's being mad. That's harsh, Tom. That's a bit harsh. He's just spending too much time on his own. Well, there's a lot of that. A lot of that
1: stuff that you get. Um, you know, where places in the Holy Land are kind of secret clues to lost civilizations, all that kind of thing. I mean, he he is an eighteen eighties version of, of those kind of books. Yeah. Um, you know, Atlantis or Aliens or something like that. That's kind of what he's doing. But then in eighteen eighty four he, as you say, he he signs up to go to the Congo as an agent for Leopold II, who is an out and out baddie.
0: It's an out it's really interesting, isn't it, Tom, to think how this different this podcast would be if he'd then gone. To the congo isn't it i mean our whole well, he,
1: he he would leopold ii is basically using gordon to try and kind of christian wash it yeah isn't it i it's, mean it's victorian hero yeah. wash it yeah um he wants him to go so that his you know what is effectively a private estate that will be brutally brutally run he's doing the same with stanley as well the uh
0: yes the american course. explorer um i don't think that gordon would have Stayed there long? No, he probably wouldn't. I mean, he's not the man to do that at all. But he really thinks that he's going to go to the Congo and end slavery. I mean, this is the sort of strange, twisted, as you said, the sort of weird, contradictory nature of African-European high politics and diplomacy in the eighteen eighties. That Leopold II tells Gordon, "I want you to come and we can end the slave trade together. You can end it in the Congo." What he really wants to do is to use. Gordon as the front man for his operation in which he will basically have Congolese slaves working for him. Yeah.
1: And I think Gordon is starting to rumble this before he goes because there's um he makes a comment huge apologies to Bart Van Lew and to all our Belgian listeners, but Gordon says, I do not like Belgians. Yeah. And I Tintin, think that that's Hercule that's, Poirot. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um I think that's uh because he's starting to
0: feel that um Leopold perhaps is up to a dirty one, but he's been in Brussels, hasn't he? He and then he comes home from Brussels in January 1884 when he's dithering about whether to accept these this offer of going to the Congo, and he he arrives in England to find a telegram from a journalist called W. T. Stead, who is the by far the most famous kind of muckraking newspaper editor of the day. This guy who runs the Pall Mall Gazette, uh, and he's called. also
1: a very keen spiritualist. Do you know the story of his daughter and the ghost?
0: I don't. Would you like to tell me?
1: I'd love to. So so their house was on Smith Square, which is where Tory central office is and now the European Union uh, right. embassy. So uh, Stead and his daughter Estelle lived there. Um And Stead then goes on to drown on the Titanic. But before he gets drowned on the Titanic, um, his daughter Estelle is, uh she's lying in bed. She gets woken up by a man who comes into the into her room slams the door open takes off his hat sits down at a desk begins writing uh ignores her completely and the same thing happens three nights in a row and estelle has no idea what's going on who is this strange guy who's wandering into her room and sitting down and writing so the father suggests um that they get hold of a spirit indicator because the obvious solution is that it's a ghost. And this spirit indicator is a kind of device for communicating with the dead. So spirit Estelle indicator. does that. Sounds great. And the spirit indicator reveals that this, it, it is a ghost and he's a chap called Gordon Knight, a minor poet who specialised in rollicking songs of the sea. and <laughs> Like a sea shanty kind of <laughs> <Yes>. character. <laughs> and he and Estelle get on tremendously well. And they're they're great pals. And they, they have a lovely time. And um, the ghost stops slamming the door. You know, he, he behaves very responsibly. Um, and, uh, and when Stead then drowns in the Titanic, the ghost keeps her in touch with her, her dead father. And he so keeps al- in touch with Stead. So the ghost is, is the intermediary. seeing Stead who's dead because yeah. he, he's now drowned in the Titanic. And so he then comes and reassures Estelle that her
0: dad's okay. Well, that's nice. So it's a, and happy, then it's a very happy did, story. Did, did Estelle and the ghost keep in touch for the rest of Estelle's life? I don't know. Wow, that's an unexpected byway of the George yeah, story. <laughs> well, but if, I suppose in a way it is <laughs> because it does show that people are believing
1: quite a lot of odd stuff at this yeah <laughs> at this <laughs> point. That, so
0: anyway, so um, Stead says to Gordon, "I'd like really, I'd really like to talk to you." So Gordon, I think the day, the next day after the day after he's yeah. arrived, or a couple of days, says, "Yeah, fine, all right, we'll meet up for this interview." And at the interview, Gordon gets out a map of the Congo to show Stead all his plans for the Congo. And Stead says, well, I'm not interested in the Congo. Are you not keeping up with, you know, the big news is the Sudan. So basically, it's all kicked off in the Sudan. Um, Egypt has been embroiled in a nationalist uprising, which the British have helped put down. And in this sort of general sort of chaos and fragmentation of, of Egypt, and also in the huge disruption in the... In the Sudan, caused by the attempts to suppress slave hunting and the slave trade, there has begun this great Islamist uprising. That's what we call it now, isn't it? Exactly. Under a guy called Mohammed Ahmad, who basically says, "I am the Mardi." Now, Tom, you will know far better than me what the what all this is about—the Mardi business.
1: Well, he's so he's um. It's this idea that there's a kind of succession of, of of significant figures who will, in the long run, herald the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world. Um, and it's it's so it kind of has um, the same kind of apocalyptic expression that you get with the Islamic State. Or the typing so, rebellion. Yeah, but this, is, yes, yes. Um, but this is yes, yes. But this is it. it's Islamic. Yeah. And and so it's expressive of that kind of same yearning for uh, an establishment of a, a perfect Islamic order that has been massively, massively enhanced by the experience of Western power. And yeah. in a way, you know, the Mahdi is expressive of that in the same way that um, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and, uh, and the Islamic State in more recent years have been. Well, we've that, talked that, about a lot of
0: similar things on this podcast haven't we tom like the typing um ghost uh, you dance. Know, Al dance the ghost dance exactly in in the united states and uh, native yeah, american yeah and
1: i think i think that um typing uh jihadism i think we can legitimately call it that um in the 19th century um the ghost dance all of these are expressions of a kind of spiritual anguish in the face of the power of the western empires um and it's it's an anguish that different societies evolve different ways to cope, you know, how, how you deal with it. And in the in the, the Muslim world, Islam has remained, you know, the great wellspring for for yearnings and and um, kind of dreams of uh, ending Western intrusion and authority and power, yeah. right the way up to the present. So that's why um, you know we said I think in the, the first episode. That this is a punctuation point in the story that leads from Napoleon's intrusion into Egypt, which we've done an episode on, right the way up to the story of nine eleven and its aftermath. Um, yeah. and it's it kind of you see, because Gordon does not think that the Mardi is religious.
0: That's the fascinating thing. He's so he religious himself, that. but he says to Stead, "Well, the Mardi is not really a religious figure." I think basically because Gordon is so fixated on ending the slave trade. And he, he knows that there's a lot of discontent in the Sudan about about that from the slave hunters. So I think he thinks that the Mahdi is merely the sort of figurehead for a local uprising against yeah. the Egyptians, the, you know, fueled by kind of slave hunters. And he thinks, if I can get, if you can sort out their grievances, then the Mahdi will kind of go away. I think that's. That, that's what and he thinks, isn't it? it? It it will provide an opportunity to get back to
1: Khartoum, and perhaps with British muscle behind, then we can crack on with suppressing the slave trade. Yeah. Which well is, this is
0: now gets gets so confused, doesn't it? And, and and strange this kind of story.
1: Okay, well I think we should take a break there. I think uh when we come back, we will look at the the broader political context in Britain, which is quite complicated, um, and then we will go into the dramatic final year and final days of Gordon of Khartoum.
2: I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier.
1: And I'm Katie Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades.
2: Welcome to The Rest is Politics, U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger.
1: Go on, tell us. Were those donations you made, like Obama in two thousand and eight, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example?
2: So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now. Cause I'm gonna be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was two thousand and seven.
1: Hello, welcome back. Um, we are into the end game with our uh, special on Gordon of Khartoum. And Dominic, um, we're gearing up to send Gordon to Khartoum a second time. Uh, yeah. We're still in Britain. What's the political context for what is
0: happening? So Britain has a Liberal government under Gladstone. Um, they, The Liberal Party is a kind of a very strongly anti-slavery party. Um, but it's also a non-interventionist party uh, in many ways compared with the, yeah. the the Tories. So again, it's kind of like people who were very against uh, military intervention,
1: NATO's military intervention in Afghanistan, but also are very much in favour of of stopping the Taliban from approaching. Exactly. So there's it's a real exactly ambivalence. That. There's a real yeah. ambivalence
0: there. Gladstone yeah. doesn't like the idea of sending armies to overthrow regimes and so on. He's a bit ambivalent about that, not least because it's expensive, and Gladstone's all about kind of keeping costs down. Uh, but there are people in the Liberal Party who think – there are some who think, you know, we should definitely shore up the Egyptian regime and shoring up the Sudan is part of that. There are some who who passionately want to end slavery and see it as an opportunity to do that. So while they're all sort of debating what are we going to do about the Sudan, where there's this big uprising, this sort of, as you say, jihadist uprising, and the Egyptian regime wants to do something about it, while they're doing that, W.T. Stead publishes his article his interview with gordon the uh, the interview is called chinese gordon on the sudan and there's an accompanying editorial entitled chinese gordon for the sudan yeah. instead basically yeah. says i've interviewed gordon he's clearly <laughs> the man send him immediately he'll sort it out and boys newspaper boys are sort of shouting these on the streets of london all the other papers pile in, say yes 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 send chinese gordon he's the man and so this is the british tabloid press the tabloid press, except, well, the, the equivalent of the tabloid press, absolutely kick, you know, sort of stir this up. Now, you mentioned, I think, in our first podcast about Gordon's great mate, Garnet Wolsey, who had he'd become pals with in the Crimea. And Garnet Wolseley is the number two man in the army to friend of the show, the Duke of Cambridge, <laughs> yes. who is totally The most incompetent commander-in-chief ever. So... Garnet Wolseley despises the Duke of Cambridge. Wolseley is, a, is, a, is Britain's top general, but he wants to really run the army himself. He's got a whole network of other generals called the Wolseley Ring around him, who are kind of modernisers and so on. I think, and I think quite a few historians take the view that Wolseley wants to use Gordon to go to the Sud- he wants to send Gordon to the Sudan and then go and rescue him. That's mm-hmm. always Wolseley's plan. He's always thinking, I'm going to this would be a great opportunity for us to. You know, use the army to go and and is Wolsey doing that?
1: What's his motivation for that?
0: It'll make his name. It'll allow him to cement his control over the army. It'll and be over his...
1: Sudan. I mean, is it a, um, is it a kind I don't of empire think nobody building? Want, about nobody or... wants.
0: Nobody wants Sudan for the Sudan. There's nothing there that people want. There's no. I mean, the only later on the French. Britain, the French and the it, British want yeah. Sudan to complete the jigsaw puzzle of their European, of their Af, of their African empires. But nobody wants it for that reason at this point. I think it's more about prestige and status than yeah, anything else. Okay. So basically, the Wolseley helps to persuade um, the Liberal government, not Gladstone, because Gladstone's away. But some well, of the Gladstone's other Gladstone's private secretary, W. W. Yeah. Hamilton. He
1: seems to be a half-cracked fatalist.
0: Yes, lots and of Gladstone's. And before Gordon's even gone. Yeah, lots of Gladstone's people say sending Gordon is absolutely demented. He's the worst possible person you could send because he's, you know, he's all about the Garden of Eden and stuff these <laughs> yeah. days. And, and also he doesn't follow orders. You know, he's reading his Bible and making up his own mind, and he doesn't do as he's told. But he gets summoned to the war office on the 18th of January, and there are four different cabinet ministers there. There's Lord Hartington, there's a guy called Charles Dilke, there's Lord Granville, Lord Northbrook, and they basically say to him, "Well, we've heard you're the man. You're, the, you know, are you going to go to the Sudan and all this sort of thing?" Now, what was Churchill re- there then? No, no <laughs> that's my generic. Well, Churchill was a liberal. He's a senior liberal minister too, Tom. Only a few years later, that's just a generic late Victorian Edwardian uh, minister's yeah, voice. Okay. Hello, Gordon. Come in. Sit down. <laughs> So go. Anyway, wow. there he go. It, there he is. What's not clear is what they tell him to do. So they think they've told Gordon go to the Sudan and uh, <laughs> fight them uh, on the beaches. No, they say <laughs> find out. It's a fact finding mission only. So they think that he's going to go and report back on the situation. What's going on in Khartoum? Report back. He seems to have thought that it's his job to evacuate the Khartoum garrison and everybody in Khartoum and get them out before the Mahdi arrives. But what also seems to be the case is that at some point in his mind, the idea takes shape. He could just go down there and run it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and some people think he gets that idea later, but some people think he had that idea from the very beginning. That He basically well, thinks I should be in charge from the start. But it's floating around in London even before he leaves, because
1: yeah. there's, a, there's a Tory peer who who says of what Gordon is planning to do. Since the days of knight errantry, never was such an expedition taken. Yeah. So there's clearly all kinds of uh, different perspectives on what's going to happen in London, just
0: as maybe there are in Gordon's head. Nobody. That's the thing. Nobody really has ironed out why Gordon is going and what he's going to do. And, and what is you know what they're going to do could once you not he also, gets could there? You not,
1: would it be uh, going too far to say that the the uncertainty reflects the massive kind of moral uncertainty that Britain feels about what the purpose of the British Empire is? Is maybe, it maybe, maybe. does I mean, it's a, it you big... know does the British Empire exist to do good to suppress slavery um, to stop elephants being wiped out or does it exist to stop the French from occupying territory? Or does it exist to serve the interests of realpolitik and, and ensure that the Egyptian government stays in place so that they continue to screw it of money? Um, maybe all those things. And yeah, in special. a sense, Gordon is, <laughs> I mean, he's such a loose cannon. Yeah, but maybe this is why it has the impact that it does because his expedition focuses all the tensions and ambivalences and contradictions that are that British imperialism, particularly in Africa, is generating but and not just idealism, idea. right
0: i mean do you not think there are elements of this when you you think about our podcast that we did about afghanistan um yes we've talked yeah. about the nine eleven and the, the yeah i'm just, you know, say- I'm just saying that. specifically africa because it's a, it because slavery is so important to the story yeah i think that's fair enough and 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 the anti-slavery thing by the way will be a feature a, a little bit later because there's an un, an unexpected irony of this mm. because of the anti-slavery cause Gordon's not allowed to have the allies that he wants to have mm. but anyway They've had this meeting. They sent a telegram to the Queen. We've, we'd like to send Chinese Gordon. The Queen loves this idea, Queen Victoria. She thinks it's absolutely brilliant. She's a great Gordon yeah. fan. Lots she's of like, underlinings like, in her yeah, letters. Yeah, she's like, me. absolutely hurrah. This is He's the He's a marvellous man. Yes. <laughs> that was almost a bit of Margaret Thatcher there, I thought, Tom. <laughs> um, it's absolutely marvellous. Right. So they take him. I mean, I think this story may be a bit apocryphal, but um, it's worth telling anyway because it's such a good story. They, they're supposed to have taken him to Charing Cross Station basically that day, and put him on the eight o'clock mail train to the continent. You know, off you go, go now. Um, Lord Granville is reputed to have bought him his ticket. I think this turns out not to be true, but it's a good story. And the other thing is that Gordon had no money with him. He didn't carry money. So his mate, Wolseley, gives him his cash and gives him his gold watch. And they sort of wave him off. Off you go, good chap, you know, good luck. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Gordon, who was going to go to the Congo, is on his way to the Sudan. But he doesn't go straight there, which was the original plan. He stops in Cairo. And this adds another level of complexity because when he gets to Cairo, he's brought in t- to see um, Evelyn Baring, who is the British agent in Egypt, who basically is running Egypt, and the Khedive, the ruler of Egypt. And they say to him, don't go to Khartoum to you know, just evacuate the garrison or to do a fat-finding mission. Go to be governor general. Go and run it. And at that point, obviously, in his own mind, the the meaning of his mission has changed, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, so a lot of people would say that's the moment at which the sort of the fatal melodrama mm. you know, is prepared. Um,
1: but so- we should also, I mean, you know, we said in the first part that there is a kind of a, a, a part of him that has always yearned for martyrdom.
0: Yeah. So he's not afraid of death because death will lead him to heaven what he keeps saying during the course of this expedition you know things are absolutely going to pot around me and it's absolute disaster And but I can't question God's plan this is what God wants and it would be wrong for me to try to change anything or to escape or any of these things because that's clearly not what God is intending so absolutely, I think by the, when he and that's he leaves, very clear to, I mean so, so the, um,
1: the French uh, the French guy whose name I can't remember who also subsequently accused him of being drunk yeah but says that, that he did, you know, what he did, he did. He, he never did anything for political
0: reasons. It was always for Christ and the Gospels. Yeah, everybody uh, knows and that. And that's why that's quite a up. lot of people, when they say we're sending Gordon, are like, what? He's the worst person <laughs> yeah. you could possibly send. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you're sending a sort of, uh, uh, people sort of say you're sending this kind of evangelical Puritan to try to save the Sudan against the Mahdi. I mean, that's completely demented. The last person, he's Gordon's not a pragmatist. He's not realpolitik. polity. He's none of these things. Anyway, off he goes. He goes on a, with his mate, Colonel Stewart, who's his sort of chosen second in command. They go south from Egypt. up. They go up the Nile by steamer, by railway, horses. Um, he arrives at the second city of, of Sudan, which is called Berber in February, 1880, 1884. Four. Yeah. And at that point, he's told, the Mardis troops have basically cut off the route from the coast, from the Red Sea. So you can't evacuate Khartoum that way. Then you can't expect rescue that way. Um, so the job is going to be much, much harder. But he says, you know, fine, we'll just keep going. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So they arrive at Khartoum on the 18th of February, 1884. And uh, you, at the very beginning of this epic, you read out the thing from he burns all the debtors' books. Yeah. And he sort of, you know, he says all... doesn't he? Yeah. And and, um, the stocks and all the implements of torture. He's a great performer. He's a great kind of political performer. He arrives in Khartoum and he clearly sees himself... I mean, this is what Lytton Strachey brings out in his essay in Eminent Victorians, that he sees himself as a bit of a kind of very small M, messiah of a kind well he's christ he? clearing the temple but straight away it's obvious he he he's not there to report back to the liberal government in london he's there for the long haul so he starts to evacuate um egyptian women and children um and european women and children by steamer but he kind of settles into the palace he walks around in his fez. um he keeps saying you know this is all God's plan. So he writes, all things are ruled by him for his glory. It is rebellion to murmur against his will. He's, he's writing all this on telegrams as well, isn't he? To, yeah. To, to bearing <laughs> so in they're Egypt. getting these telegrams. And like,
1: <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So please advise uh, estimated arrival on steamer,
0: And then <laughs> loads of quotations from the Bible. And Yeah. I mean, not what you want, really. But of course, but all the time this is being followed, you know, by the British newspapers. So they know Queen that Gordon Victoria. is gone. And and they're like, what? You know, Gordon is the great hero. We've got to rescue him. Gordon. Well, because then be- he doesn't, doesn't stew it, he gets massacred. Yes, he, he does. So a series of things start to go wrong. So, first of all, Gordon has said, I want this guy called Zubair, who's a sort of a local chief, a warlord, basically. He is the man I need at my side to run the Sudan. Because I've been to the Sudan before and I know he has all the contacts. But Zubair is a slave hunter and a slave trader. And also the father of someone who Gordon, who Gordon has, <laughs> has had, got, <laughs> had killed. That, that is also a problem. Yeah. Um, but the anti-slavery society in Britain says under no circumstances can he have Zubair because Zubair is a bad guy because he's a slaver. Yeah. So um, the Gladstone is told by other liberal politicians, oh, it'll cause a lot of trouble for us with the liberal grassroots. So Gladstone says, well, he can't have Zubair. No good. So at that point, Gordon doesn't really have any local allies. And the Mahdi's army is closing in the whole time. And Bering in Cairo keeps saying to Gordon, well, you could evacuate. You could send... You could, well, it's, it's you very could... like the
1: Taliban, isn't it?
0: I mean, it's, it's re- the reports coming back from, from Kabul saying the Taliban are closing in. But what was the analogy? Who would we send or the Americans send to Kabul that would be the equivalent of General Gordon? I mean, Tony Blair, if he'd gone personally. (laughs) People would be saying, we must rescue Tony Blair before the. (laughs)
1: No, (laughs) who would it be?
0: be? Meghan Markle. Oh, my God, Tom. Prince Harry. It would be Prince Harry.
1: Would it be? It would be someone like Prince Harry.
0: (laughs) It's such a bizarre scenario. I I don't know. Um,
1: Well, because Prince Harry served in Afghanistan. He did. Yeah, I I think that's
0: the... If we sent him to be governor general... And also Prince Harry. But, 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 then, but also because because he's he's
1: been born again.
0: Yeah. Into weakness.
1: Yes. And, and he's, you know, he's refusing to come because he's got to save. It's got to decolonize the he's got to decolonise the Afghan curriculum. to the Afghan curriculum. Exactly. <laughs> that's the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well,
0: I yeah. I mean, I think that's what's going on. Well, anyway, this situation has now got completely out of control. People are saying to Gordon, you could go north, you could go south, you could get out of Khartoum, and he's look like, under no circumstances am I le-. he says I'm not going to leave Khartoum and leave people behind. Absolutely not. I'm here for the long haul. The Mahdi So he's the leader of the jihad. He starts sending Gordon all these letters saying why you know, why don't you surrender and embrace Islam? It'll be fine, you know, we can be great pals. And in the film Khartoum, with Laurence Olivier as the Mahdi Charlton and Heston Charlton as, Heston yeah. don't they meet up um do, yes. the Gordon and the Mardi actually it's meet it's not up. a film that gets shown a lot these days <laughs> no because Laurence Olivier is blacked up you see to play the uh, to play the Mardi like Charlton Heston as yeah Gordon I, mean, I not think Charlton is quite good as Gordon actually in the the film anyway that's by the by. so Gordon says no I'm not going to convert to Islam you know I'm I'm still here so you know uh the Mardi's closing in and in Britain more people are getting more and more agitated and Gladstone is digging his heels in. And Gladstone says, no, no, I'm not going to send a relief force. And then eventually he agrees he has to. And Wolsey gets what he's always wanted, which is the chance to lead the rescue, but much too late because Gladstone has delayed and delayed. So the Wolsey expedition only arrives in Cairo on the 9th of September, 1884. So at this point, uh, Gordon has been in cartoon for, what, seven months or so. Uh, but... At this point, the Mahdi is very clo- is really quite close to to Khartoum. So, fight you know, Gordon has had to put chains across rivers, and he's he's basically formed the people of Khartoum into a kind of defence. He's giving them little metal stars for good conduct and so mm-hmm. on. He's running the whole thing as a kind of as a kind of military operation. Uh, a month afterwards, he's landed in Cairo. The Mahdi arrives outside Khartoum, and then you have this you know for day after days and days and days the um, the Dervishes, as they were, the British called them, the Ansar, I think, as they call themselves, the Mardist army. They're bombarding Khartoum with cannons and rockets and so on, and sort of rifle fire and things. And then the but, waters drop, don't they? They do. They do. So it's all so as you know that it suddenly gets to the point where, like, okay, this is this is really serious now. Um, if the British don't arrive, you know. Now, now, Gordon is doomed. <laughs> Gordon is up there on the roof of his palace, reading his Bible, writing letters, constantly writing. You know, God's will will be done, and all this. Yep. Uh, thank God, I don't have to go to any dinner parties <laughs> All this kind of stuff. I wonder how the Wangs are getting on. <laughs> yeah, the people of Khartoum have been reduced to eating dogs. As the the you know, it's all going horribly wrong. The the British are coming south. On, I think the 17th of January, 1885, the British fight the first, the sort of vanguard, the advance guard. So the British have come in this long, long column. They have to come so slowly because they need water and they need supp- They can't, you know, outpace their supply train. So it's taking forever. It's taking months. They fight the Mahdiists at a place called Abu Clair, but their commander is killed. This is the place, Tom. You know the poem that we read out in the cricket episode, my favourite poem. Oh, about the uh, stand, play up, play up and play the game. Play up, play up and play the game. Vitae Lamparda. So um uh the square that broke, that broke the colonel's yeah. dead, you yeah. know, the all that sort of stuff. This sort of great poem of Empire, that's written about this battle, the square broke and you know, there's all carnage. Um so they're they're going very slowly now, the, the relief force. Then on the twenty-fifth of January, I think it is Gordon's up smoking on his roof, reading the Bible, but down below the Mardiists have identified, as you said, the waters have receded and they've identified that a ditch mm. has been left undefended or something. They can see a weakness in the defenses. And first thing the next morning, the 26th, the 26th of January, two days before Gordon's birthday, yeah. they break into Khartoum. And what follows is utter, utter carnage. Thousands of people being massacred, being beheaded, all Europeans basically
2: being killed. And one of them, being one of
0: them and, is Gordon. Well, we don't know what happens to Gordon. So the famous story. Well, we know he we got beheaded. We know that. but and We know he what, died. We don't know how. And no. the famous, the image that became one of the absolute defining images, not just of, of Victorian Britain, but of European empire, I would say, mm-hmm. and, and the relationship between Europe and Africa, on, Asia, yeah. and so on is George William Joy's painting, which you can see online if you don't know it, of Gordon standing there, imperturbable, in his fez, in his suit, um, on the steps of the palace, and this sort of great crowd of dervishes with spears facing him. And that's mm. the, the, the image at the end of the um, Charlton Heston film, which yeah. recreates it to the letter. See, Charlton see. Heston looks regal you know he looks but there splendid but there, there are reports aren't there that he,
1: he 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 fights yeah until he runs out of ammunition and then gets overwhelmed but isn't it or further complicating it i mean he 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 writes he, he's debating whether he should accept death or if he gets captured what should he then do and he he says that perhaps capture will be a kind of
0: calvary for him a kind yeah. of what an extraordinary thing to be thinking though, Tom, isn't it? Yeah, to be it weighing is. up in your mind. Yeah. I mean there yeah. are some accounts, aren't there, that he there's one well, account. Well the Mahdi wanted was, him alive. He did. There's one account that Gordon bared his breast to the Dervishes and shouted strike and one of them plunged a spear into his chest. Yeah. Um I mean there are numerous. But we different know he, he does die against the Mahdi's wishes,
1: he wanted him captured, and he does get beheaded. And the yeah. the head gets taken to the to the Mahdi. Yeah. And the body is thrown down a well, I think. And they, they yeah. get never gets found. And two days later, the British steamers turn up
0: outside Khartoum. Two days, Tom. That's all. And they don't all. even land, do they? They just... No, they arrive and they I think they realise. And Wools' great expedition, he's called home. Um, he sends a furious, furious telegram to Queen Victoria and blames Gladstone for the whole thing and say Gladstone's Well, So admits. Gladstone, uh, the grand old man, the G-O-M, gets yeah. inverted to become... Mog, the murder of Gordon. I mean, when the news reached Britain, there was a Princess Diana style, and around the world, I think explosion. I mean, there was. A, I've. Am I not right in thinking that um, there were signs with black borders in Boston and New York and so on, yeah. all and around even the world, in Germany and yeah, you know that Gordon, the hero of Christian Western civilization, had been abandoned and betrayed and left to die in Khartoum. Uh, killed by the Dervishes, you know. This is it, it's a, it's a story that could have been, could have been dreamed up by the some sort of by the, the enemies of slave traders, and so yeah,
1: so many knots of paradox and complexity. And then further adding to that is is then what happens in 1898
0: when yeah the British return the British
1: return and wipe the wipe the Mahdi's army out at the Battle of Omdurman on the other side of the the Nile
0: from cartoon which Churchill is is present at Churchill writes about Omdurman brilliantly by the way in his book the river war because he was with the 21st Lancers so they they think they're there I mean they're not really there to avenge Gordon that's what they're, they're, they're told there to, aren't they they're, they're there, there to, to stop the French, the French. <laughs> yeah and isn't but it right so it's commanded by Kitchener who had who, who'd known Gordon yes
1: that's and right after the battle he opens up the orders and gets told <laughs> <laughs> actually
0: it's nothing to do with Gordon you've got to go and stop the French but Gordon but Kitchener um, made a point of uh despoiling the tomb of the Mardi. The Mahdi was dead by this point. Uh Kitchener had the Mardi's wanted had the Mahdi's tomb kind of you know, his his bones destroyed or thrown into a river or something. And um as as vengeance for Yeah. And who is it? Um Reginald Wingate, who was another one of the officers.
1: A- and he, Douglas Haig as well, wasn't
0: it? He exactly. He supposedly um got hold of the skull of the Mardis successor, who was called the Khalifa, and he had it made into a cup. And he used to drink champagne out of it, Tom, on the anniversary of the Battle of Omdurman, every year until 1953. Goodness. which is, um,
1: And they were able
0: to do that, uh, what is it, um, because we have got... The Gatling gun, and they have not. But the, the shock of Gordon's death, the way in which he was turned into a martyr... So Robert Louis Stevenson said, uh, England stands before the world dripping with blood and daubed with dishonor. And this sort of sense that Gordon was, he's not, he, he's not just a martyr. He's not a hero. He's, a, he's a, positively a saint. I mean, this or is Christ-like, what- um, Christlike. Quite, genuinely Christ. I mean, so you know. this is what Wolseley said. Wolseley, um, where are you? Wolseley said, he's gone from amongst us and I shall never know his like again. Indeed, many generations may come and go without producing a Charlie Gordon. His example will be one that fathers will hold up to their sons in England, and as long as any faith in God remains to us as a nation, and that we continue to be manly enough to revere the highest form of courage and devotion to duty. This is a letter to Gordon's brother. So long will your brother be quoted and referred to as the human embodiment of all manly and Christian virtues. And this was, I mean, widespread. In Britain and the English-speaking world in the 1880s, the sense that Gordon was the embodiment of Western civilization and Christian civilization. Do you not think, Tom? I do, Uh, and I also think that that
1: is then what um, gets reacted against, most famously by Strachey. Yes, his—I mean, so so his—the last lines of his biography of Gordon. The future lay with Major Kitchener and his Maxim Nordenfelt guns. Thirteen years later, the Mahdi's empire was abolished forever in the gigantic hecatomb of Omdurman. And then he has this um very famous last line. At any rate, it had all ended very happily in a glorious slaughter of 20,000 Arabs, a vast addition to the British empire and a step in the peerage for Sir Evelyn Baring. And I guess that that would be the kind of default... Attitude now that anything involving British military expeditions to uh, you know up the Nile um is is to be viewed in those terms but I think it is much more complicated well partly it's the slavery aspect right absolutely uh, yes i mean and does... I think that that um that that you know if we're we're saying well who you know who are Gordon's heirs today in contemporary britain uh, I mean they're as to be you know to be found among people who are campaigning to return looted artefacts to Nigeria and um, uh, condemning uh, slavery and um, campaigning to
0: save wildlife in Africa,
1: um, as they are among you know, the more jingoistic,
0: perhaps. But but Gordon would be a complete liberal interventionist, wouldn't he? I mean, he would be, uh, you know, we should be in Afghanistan um, protecting women from the Taliban. Yes. He'd be all about that, wouldn't he? They're, they're yes. really his, his heirs, I would say.
2: People yes. who look at, you know...
0: Other parts of the world, and say we have a duty to bring them into the light. I would say that Christian motivation is, is which might be secularized now, um, but is absolutely there in kind of lots of Western societies,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that that's why it's such a fascinating topic. And I thoroughly commend you,
0: ah, for thank having you, having picked Tom. on it. So, so, so we've you, done so that's uh, General Gordon. Shall I read? Shall I take us out by reading? Yeah, I feel um,
1: very bad because you, you, um, you actually. You sent the poem to me, and I enjoyed it so much. I said, "Could I read it?" And I've read, um, I've read five of the verses, and I know that you were
0: dying to. So, why don't you take us out with the last, the last, the last verses. few verses? Okay. Yeah. I won't do it in my Scottish accent, my McGonagall accent, because I think that would be disrespectful well, to just don't General Just do it Gordon. in your
1: inverted commas, Churchill.
0: I <laughs> oh, indeed, in uh, yeah, well, I could do it in your Neanderthal voice, I suppose, but that would be <laughs> uh, that definitely would be disrespectful to General it would be very disrespectful. Okay, here we go. He was always willing to conduct meetings for the poor, also meat and clothing for them he tried to procure, and he always had little humorous speeches at command, for that's not true, and to hear him deliver them it must have been grand. In military life his equal couldn't be found, not if you were to search the wide world around, and tis pitiful to think he is met with such a doom by a base traitor knave while in Khartoum. Yes, the black-hearted traitor opened the gates of Khartoum, and through that the Christian hero has met his doom. For when the gates were opened, the Arabs rushed madly in and foully murdered him, while they laughingly did grin. But he defended himself nobly with axe and sword in hand. But alas, he was soon overpowered by that savage band, and his body received a hundred spear wounds and more, while his murderers exultingly did loudly shriek and roar. But heaven's will, tis said, must be done, and according to his own opinion his time was come. But I hope he's now in heaven, reaping his reward, although his fate on earth was really very hard. (laughs) I hope the people will his memory revere, and take an example from him, and worship God in fear, and never be too fond of worldly gear, and walk in General Gordon's footsteps while they are here.